This is the Definitely Uncertain Podcast, brought to you by Goldrock Capital. Each week, we look at how high net worth families can improve their lives, decisions, and investments in a deeply uncertain world. We always aim to provide practical information, even if we can't offer specific investment advice. Welcome to the Definitely Uncertain Podcast by Goldrock Capital. My name is David Ram, and I'm a partner at Goldrock Capital, a 20-year-old multifamily office servicing high net worth investors across the globe. With me today is Michael Granoff, the CEO of Pomona Capital, a global private equity firm specializing in secondary investing and providing liquidity solutions for investors. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, David. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, first of all, uh, I hope you and your family are staying safe and healthy in these, you know, volatile times that we're, that we're living in. You mentioned to me you're back in New York City, but I, and I hope you stay safe uh, uh, moving forward as well. No, thank you. Who would have thought that the, uh, the safest place to be uh, would be somewhere between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and not somewhere in New York, but that's where we are. Absolutely. I, I, I look forward to coming back visiting you guys when everyone's back in the office. At least uh, seventy or eighty percent uh, capacity. We'll see. What, we'll see what happens in a few years when it gets. Well, I there. look forward to being to coming and visiting you. <laughs> yeah, that too. That too, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about a couple of things. Uh, you have an interesting history, interesting experiences uh, across different uh, components, whether it's philanthropy, whether it's politics. And of course, uh, the main focus I want to discuss is private equity investing, uh, which is an important component of an allocation for, for clients in the high net worth community. So um, first and foremost, maybe you could just introduce yourself in more, in more detail and maybe give a, a very short perspective on you know, what you how you view the secondary market and why you think it's an important component within a portfolio. Sure. Uh, so I started uh, Pomona in 1994, a long time ago. It was named after the street I grew up on as a kid in Massachusetts, and Pomona was the Roman goddess of plenty, so I thought that was a good name. What we tried to do from the beginning was to, um, David, was to, to try to see if we could have a value approach to private equity. In general, there are value approaches to most asset classes, and there really wasn't a value approach to private equity. And we were trying to think of how we could do that. And the way we chose to do it was to buy what became known as secondary interests in funds. That is, we we would buy the interest of investors in private equity funds or companies that needed liquidity prior to the term of the partnership. And because we could buy into these funds well into their life and it wasn't a blind pool and we could look at all the companies in a fund, decide what we thought about them, uh, decide what we wanted to pay for them and not have to wait lo so long for liquidity, we realized that if we did that right, we would, able, we would be able to reduce the risk uh, of investing in private equity by a lot. And interestingly, we didn't need to trade risk against return, which is what you often have to do if you want to reduce risk. So we thought that was a pretty interesting uh, approach uh, if we could kind of make it work. And so from the beginning, our, that's been our strategy to see if we can find a way to invest in private equity with a margin of safety. And that's worked pretty well now um, for 25, 26 years through a lot of different economic cycles and, and is working quite well uh, even today and in, in today's uncertain environment. 
That's a great overview. That's interesting. So in terms of, you know, how I view it as well, because I've, I've been uh, a fan of yours uh, in specific in, in the market of secondary uh, in general for quite a number of years. In terms of how I look at it for my clients, we think about it in terms of providing what we call the beta of the private equity market, as opposed to the uh, more the alpha of the private equity market a little bit. Of course, there's some alpha in every fund, in every active manager, but in terms of the d- diversification one can get in secondary, uh, one could kind of ensure they're outperforming, hopefully, the public markets by getting that e-liquidity premium uh, without having to bet too much on a very concentrated uh, portfolio. That's what we find that to be very valuable. But one of the most important components to make sure that it's maintained that outperformance over the public markets is maintained is the supply and demand in the market, uh, the supply of capital, demand uh, to sell those assets uh, with the massive growth of the secondary market in terms of assets under management and also, frankly, the very large growth in the private equity market as well. uh, How do you see the supply and demand of uh, of the secondary market uh, today, moving forward, 2021, 2022, et cetera? So the first thing, going back to your question for a minute about alpha, Hmm. there's a way in which we probably provide alpha, I don't know, maybe both on the upside and downside. That is that we are buying interest in funds at a discount to net asset value. So our starting point is giving us a gain uh, from the very beginning between what we pay and the net asset value. So we provide, I would say we provide alpha in a a slightly different way than most people do, let's say. So we provide it, surely we hope we're buying higher than market quality assets that are typically kind of the definition of creating alpha, but we hope we're buying those higher than market quality assets at a lower than market price. And by buying those assets at a lower than market price, we're essentially providing a margin of safety, which is alpha, another component of alpha, let's say. So it's actually an interesting calculation to think about. Right. In terms of supply and demand, um, if you think about uh, supply in our business, it's fairly simple. It's a function of two variables, how much money goes into private equity over time and what percentage of that gets turns over or people want to sell. Um, if you look at supply today, um, if you look at how much money has been got, uh, gone into private equity over the last few years and, for example, contrast it with how much money had gone into private equity at the time of the financial crisis. Right. It's about two and a half times as much money in private equity today as there was then. So whatever the turnover rate is, it's against a number that is, you know, has gotten much larger over time. Mm -hmm. So the, let's say the potential supply um, is quite large and the potential supply, uh, especially if things continue to be uncertain, could be quite large. And the, um, you're right that um, we have no shortage of competitors. Um, I wish we had fewer competitors, of course. Uh, and so I think there's a rough equilibrium of supply and demand. So right. I, okay. I don't think there's uh, too much demand for supply or too much supply for demand. And actually, if you look at the measure of that, the sort of overhang of capital, the secondary market has more of an equilibrium than, let's say, the buyout market or private equity in general. That is, there's much more dry powder, let's say, in the uh, in the private equity market in general than there is in the secondary market. So if you just mm-hmm. you probably say that the secondary market is healthier. Now, that doesn't make me feel any better when we lose uh, a lot because we're only buying 
one to three percent of the deal flow that we see typically oh, wow. because the rest of it does not either doesn't meet our quality criteria or someone will pay more than we will. So it doesn't make me feel any better when we lose. But I think there's probably a, a rough equilibrium between supply and demand. And when people ask me, um, you know, sort of what keeps you up at night um, and how do you think about uh, that side of it? Uh, what keeps me up at night is um, is not supply. Uh, not deal flow. It's right. the quality of the assets uh, and the pricing of the assets. It's not the amount of the assets. Sure. I, I, can, I would assume that the discount that you mentioned earlier is directly related to the supply and demand as well, meaning the more capital chasing the, those high quality deals, the, those discounts uh, dissipate uh, quite quickly, potentially. Um, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the things that I've been thinking about, I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who runs an endowment at a university and he was actually quite worried about his portfolio because he's, t- he's typically he has a responsibility, of course, to have capital available for expenses to the university. And those expenses are serviced by the endowment if needed, uh, but often by revenue. And if you're a Big Ten uh, university or uh, ACC, you know, one of these big sports universities, you would generate an enormous amount of money, usually like a billion dollar area of money uh, of revenue from the sporting, which is not happening now because of COVID-19. Uh, and he was worried that he may have to offer a lot of private equity assets in order to provide a more balanced allocation and liquidity to his university. Are you seeing anything uh, in, in the markets where potentially the demand, I guess it's the right words, demand uh, to sell those assets are going to be increasing? Maybe it hasn't happened yet, but are you seeing at least certain trends for 2021 and moving forward where th- those demand uh, increases may occur? Well, David, I think you're right that if you if you look at um, what creates supply for us, it's a combination of macro and micro factors. That is, some of it is based on big macro factors about the virus and market dislocation and all of that. And some of it is, is uh, of course, what's happening to individual investors one way or another. Right? right. And and the world, as we know, is not monolithic and it's not even monolithic among categories. That is, so if you take your example, which is U.S. university endowments, you're right. U.S. university endowments are under more pressure today in general than foundation endowments, than pension funds, than other categories of people who invest in institutions that invest in private equity. And they are, you know, you can think of a lot of jobs that you may want, being a university president in the United States is probably not one that you would like today because it's a very, very difficult situation where your costs have really not declined very much um, and yet your revenues have. Um, And so we are already beginning to see uh, university endowments under pressure, perhaps looking to sell. It's an area of particular interest to us. Mm. We know them uh, fairly well. So you're right. You've identified one group of potential sellers that may be, let's say, earlier in the process to sell uh, rather than later. This fact, though, of the market not being monolithic is important. So, for example, we've been able to buy consistently at a discount that is significantly higher than sort of the market average, right? So, you know, you you said, well, as more people come into it and out of it, that discounts people, more people are after the same assets and discounts would shrink. We've actually um, 
since 2016, we bought at an average discount of about 16%. And the market average is a thousand basis points less. Wow. So luckily we are in a market that is uh, not monolithic. Um, it, we're buying a pretty small percentage of the deal flow we see. We have to keep our fund sizes fairly modest in size so that we're not pushed in either two directions. The market where you're talking about where it's more efficient and you end up paying a higher price for assets and you lose that margin of safety or being pushed further out on the risk curve where you're asked to take much more risk, maybe for less return in some cases or the same return. And we don't want to do that. So we, yeah. we very much want to stay in our zone where we can buy um, at all times. So in the last few years, obviously, assets haven't been cheap. Markets have been high. And yet we've been able to buy at a discount that is significantly higher than market. You can go you go back to the fund before it in 2012, similar kinds of, right. uh, of margins. So we need one of the benefits of our strategy is that we are trying to take advantage of the fact that our market is not monolithic. It's not governed by a few macro factors that you kind of can't get out of the way of. And you mentioned two things earlier as well, which I thought was interesting. One is that you made more value oriented in nature since the beginning of the firm. And you also mentioned that about two and a half times the private equity has been, you know, is active in the market today versus 2008. A lot, you know, we're in Israel, you know, the startup nation, tech, et cetera. A lot of the uh, capital that I've seen flow in has been in late stage venture, uh, buyout tech, Etc. A very tech heavy. Of course, it's not across the board in private equity, but there seems to be a significant increase of capital in in uh, technology focused uh, private equity. And I also have noticed that there's been a shrinking number of companies uh, in the in the public markets where private companies are staying private a lot longer. Um, when you think about value orientation and maybe the increase in technology uh, as, a, as an overall uh, percentage of the private equity market, how are you guys accessing or do you guys have an interest in accessing technology? Because those assets typically are very uh, pricey and uh, difficult to value and, uh, and perhaps a large portion of the overall market, but it's not exactly a value orientation. And especially when you want to outperform public markets where the public markets have been dramatically um, uh, you know, you know, pulled ahead by you know, five companies, forget about the tech market, but there's five companies have been pulling it ahead. So thinking about all that in terms of a private investor thinking, should I just buy the S&P? Should I go private market? What does it mean if, I, if I'm going to lose out on technology exposure? How do you guys think about that? You know, it's an interesting question. And I think that the private equity world has um, evolved in a way that's not so dissimilar from public markets or other kinds of markets. So if you look at, um, uh, we have very little exposure, I would say, to early stage venture. Uh, because of its risk profile. Sure. At the same, and we own interests in, as you mentioned, in thousands of companies now, uh, spread out across the economy. And if you said it with billions of dollars, and if you asked what's our highest industry concentration, it's technology, hmm. which may be surprising to you. So yes. and the reason for that is that if you look at um, the, the buyout sector of the market, the non-venture part of private equity, over time, it has gravitated more towards growth in general. 
the old story about buyouts being, you know, I buy some mature business and I uh, apply some leverage and I bust it up or I, you know, do things and make it better and sell it off um, is um, in most cases yesterday's buyout market. And today's buyout market is more about buying companies that are going to grow, making them better, um, all of those kinds of things. And so mm -hmm. the, the, that emphasis on growth um, now is pervasive across private equity. And where do you find uh, businesses, the sector where businesses are growing? Well, you find a lot of it in technology. So we have a lot of exposure mm -hmm. to um, mid-market buyout funds uh, like Inside and Outax and Berkshire and Charles Bank and people like that that have a lot of exposure to um, to growth and a lot of exposure to technology. Now, the technology exposure that we have, as I mentioned to you, is not early stage venture exposure. Right. Uh, so it's companies that are more mature. Um, they're less likely to fail for sure. Um, in that way, they don't have the same risk profile, um, but they certainly have this that kind of emphasis. And so it's become a bigger and bigger part of our business. Also, because we tend to, we want to gravitate towards uh, higher quality assets. <clears throat> One of the definitions of higher quality assets <clears throat> are companies that are growing. Right. And so we are attracted to them. Makes sense. No, that's, that's very helpful. Yeah. You know, um, one more question around around your your business, your market, etc. You know, you mentioned you you're, you're uh, arguably one of the fathers of the secondary market. You've been around uh, in this space since the early '90s, uh, and even though you're, you're obviously still a, quite a young man, but thinking about uh, the growth of the firm or the continue the continuity of the firm, the succession planning. How do you think about that in terms of you know going out and raising funds that typically are eight years, ten years, twelve years long, whatever they are? Uh, you, every time you go out, go off and raise a new fund, there's another ten years you're committing uh, to your investors. How do you think about ensuring uh, your team is incentivized, your investor base is confident uh, in, in the in the uh, stickiness of that team, uh, and making sure that you know not only for the past twenty five years but for the next uh, twenty five years. Uh, Pomona will be a leader in the market? Well, you've identified uh, quite a key question um, because if you think about it, while I think we have a, a good strategy that we can say we stick to and we don't have style drift and all of that, we own nothing proprietary. Um, we don't have any patents on anything. I mm -hmm. can't tell you that we have some kind of mathematical tool that we can't disclose to you on pain of death. We know I don't think I'm going to win the Nobel Prize in economics anytime soon. So our business is completely an execution business. And you're right. I've gone from being the youngest person in the room to one of the oldest people in the room. Um, <laughs> and so it's uh, it's something that we really need to think about because the business is so execution dependent. So I spend, spend a lot of time on it. And you're right, we have a um, long-term commitment to investors. Investors rely on us um, for you know long periods of time. Our partnerships are 10 years long uh, to execute during that time. And most of our investors are fiduciaries in one way or another. Mm -hmm. They're mostly institutional, some high net worth people, but mostly institutional. And um, they have fiduciary responsibilities um, and we have fiduciary responsibilities to them. Yeah. So uh, Pomona right now has three generations of partners, actually. 
Um, all of our, virtually all of our partners have been homegrown. The average tenure of our senior investment team is over a dozen years. Uh, we, um, so we grow our own talent. We provide profit participation down to the level of secretary in some cases. So not just doing it to partners, giving it to partners. We want uh, as many people as possible to feel like owners. Owners act differently than employees uh, in that way. We want right. people to be kind of thinking about it in the shower and you know, not just kind of working at it nine to five. Our business is a difficult, intense, cha always changing kind of business. Mm -hmm. And we have quite a diverse team. So uh, Pomona ha happens to have two women partners. That's quite rare in uh, our world. Uh, over a third of our senior positions, in fact, are held by women. Um, we are we field one of the most diverse uh, teams, not just in our business, the secondaries business, but in private equity, actually, overall. It's become more and more important to investors as they look at ESG kinds of things and all of that, how they want people to act. But I think for us, it's actually made us better investors um, in the sense that we've got people who come to us with different perspectives. Um, so we have a little bit less group think, I hope. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that there's a risk when everybody went to the same prep school, everyone went to the same university, everyone went to the same business school that you can kind of think alike. And uh, in our business, we can't afford to think alike. And so I think that we really benefit from having people who came from different places, give us different perspectives, look at things a little bit differently, and hopefully that gives us an edge. That's, that's a great point. Yeah, at Gold Rock, we have, we're, we're a small firm. You know, we're 10 people, but four of us are, are women and the three partners. Uh, I'm American. My two partners, one of them is British, one of them is Australian. We all come from very, very different backgrounds. So it's actually quite interesting uh, when we compare uh, perspectives. It actually is very valuable. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, just talking about, obviously, we're, it's November 2nd. <laughs> um, and uh, tomorrow's a, a really uh, an interesting day in the calendar. Um, you're somebody who's, who's been active on the political scene, not only on the investment scene, for, uh, for a number of years. I think you were involved in the, in the, in the 90s, uh, in the Obama administration as well, a little bit, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'd love to get your, your take. First of all, uh, I don't know if you want to do any predictions or not, but I'm happy to hear a prediction if you're interested in, in doing that. Uh, but obviously, there's been a lot of uh, challenging uh, societal elements around polarization, vitriol happening in, on both sides of the uh, of the aisle. Uh, are you optimistic? Do you do you uh, have any specific things you're thinking about in order to improve the situation? Obviously, the situation in America. Uh, you know, we have a phrase in, in Gold Rock: when America sneezes, the world gets a, a cold. Um, so the activity of the polarization in America is similar in many places across the world right now. So it's not only a U.S. centric uh, issue. It happens to be a much more entertaining president. That's all. But uh, the issue is still um, quite global. Uh, do you have any, any uh, thoughts around or, or plans around how you see things improving? And a, a prediction would be also great. Yeah. So those are tough questions. Um, so in terms of the election, well, so I, I worked in government twice, once in the Congress and once for uh, President Clinton, actually, um, in a formal kind of way. So I've kind of had two stints in government um, during my career, my lifetime. So I've kind of seen it uh, in that from the inside in that kind of way. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this election uh, 
is new ground in a lot of ways, um, not just because who, of who the candidates are and not just because of the virus, but also because of even the way people are voting in the United States. So you have so many people who have voted already uh, right. and are voted by mail, and we don't know how those votes get counted exactly. So you have some wild cards here that we frankly have never had before. Right. And so it's a little hard to tell um, what effect those things are going to have. Is it huge? Is it not so huge? Does it tend to tilt one way or another? I don't think anybody yet knows um, hmm. what's going to happen. Um, and we're dealing with a highly volatile situation, uh, for sure. Uh, there's certainly a scenario in which it um, gets kind of escalated to become more legal or judiciary and gets into the court system. And uh, our court system is far from, uh, has polarization too, uh, because of the nature of the people who appointed the judges in the first place. And so judges have become more political over time or more responsive to the party that dominated them, let's say. Um, and so it's unclear of, of uh, how those judges will ulti would ultimately um, decide in, in that way. I hope it doesn't go in that direction because the reason is, I think if it does, it questions the legitimacy of the election. And one of the most important things about democracy is that people need to, um, they may not be happy with the result, but um, it sure helps if they feel that it was fair and, uh, right. and it was decided in a fair way. And if people feel that elections are illegitimate, then they feel uh, emboldened or authorized to do all kinds of things that they probably that that they shouldn't be doing um, right. in that way. So I hope that uh, whatever happens, that uh, people may not, depending on where you stand, you may not be happy with the result, but you do feel that um, the result was fair and the result was clear and and all of that. So it's hard to make uh, a prediction in that light. Um, also, you have, um, it's hard, uh, the polls obviously got it wrong in 2016. Uh, they think they're better this time. Right. We'll find out whether they are or whether they're not. Um, and you do have a phenomenon that is, we don't always have, which is that uh, you have a lot of people who uh, actually may end up voting to reelect President Trump that don't want to admit it. And so you get kind of an undercount uh, of people in that way. I'll just tell you one joke about it. So mm -hmm. in 1960, President Kennedy beat Richard Nixon by like 0.01%. It was actually one of the closest elections ever. Uh, actually, we didn't know election night. Um, president Kennedy went to sleep in Cape Cod, not knowing whether he was going to be president or not. And he, when he woke up at five or six in the morning, found out that, uh, that in fact, he had won. So he won by like 50.1%. Mm -hmm. 10 years later, there was a poll of people um, who voted in the 1960 election, asking them who they voted for. Right. 5% said they had voted for Kennedy. Okay. None of those people who voted for Nixon wanted to admit that they had voted for Nixon. Wow. Okay. And we have a little bit of that same phenomenon here where you have a lot of people who and that, and that already vote, happened and that already happened as opposed to tomorrow. President Trump, who aren't telling anybody, maybe even their own husbands or wives, um, who they're going to vote for and what effect that's going to have. Um, I, I really don't know. Um, so I, I, you know, based on the data, would you rather be uh 
Vice President Biden today or would you rather be President Trump? Based on the data, you'd rather be Vice President Biden. Sure, but sure. Got a lot of variability out there that that we just don't know. Um, my hope is that it is um, fairly clear cut. So yeah. I think the biggest danger is if it's uh, not. Yeah. So your question about polarization, um, I think that many, many people feel um, that uh, the world is not exactly headed in the most positive direction. And that's true from a macro point of view, and it's true from a micro point of view. That is, our communities are more polarized from the bottom up, and our politics seem more polarized from the top down. This is a, I think this is a um, quite a disturbing phenomenon that threatens all of the democratic principles that we hold so dear. And one of the things that we're finding, I think, is that those uh, pillars of democracy are um, much less stable than we thought, that they are not as rock solid and that they are subject to um, uh, erosion um, at a rate that we probably hadn't expected. And that deals with um, how we deal with each other, what happens with the judiciary, how the approach to the free press and, and free speech and those kinds of things. Um, all of the pillars of democracy around the world, I think, are under pressure. And that's a very dangerous uh, phenomenon. And it's dangerous in the United States. It's dangerous in Israel. It's dangerous yeah. um, everywhere. And I think that we as citizens have a a big responsibility to try to do what we can to push in the other direction. That is, I, I think we can either kind of indulge the worst facets of humanity or try to press uh, more to encourage the better facets of humanity. Um, and we've seen in history uh, what happens either way. And what happens when our worst natures uh, get triggered is not a a very good site. And that's a little bit of what we're seeing now. Yeah. So I think we have a lot of responsibility, each of us in our own way to choose how we want to do it, to kind of to work to improve the environment so that our lives, our kids' lives, our grandchildren's lives will be better. Because I don't think it's a, um, it's a certainty that the democracy that you and I grew up with uh, continues indefinitely. Yeah. Without yeah, I think uh, I, it's very, it's really. I'm, I'm a bit, a bit more optimistic, perhaps, but I, but I do, I do hope uh, uh, things get a little bit better. Obviously, I, I agree with your, your uh, diagnostics there. I remember when I was a kid, you know, if you missed, if you missed the six o'clock news, you had to wait till eleven, right? It, there was no other. Uh, it wasn't twenty four seven in your face all day long, uh, and I think now it's really creating a polarized uh, environment uh, where media is sensationalist and lazy. And uh, there's not a lot of interest uh, in, in providing stability and truth. But yeah, it's, it's, a, big, it's a big challenge. In, in conclusion, I wanted I to- I tell you though, David, just to, on the terms yeah. of, I, I, um, while I have a lot of short and medium term concerns, um, especially with regards to the United States, um, I am a believer. Uh, that is, I think that uh, I, I have a lot of confidence in the ability of the United States to be fairly resilient and at the end of the day, um, get it right. And yeah. so there's a great 
quote from Churchill, which you probably have heard, which says that um, the United States uh, usually gets it right after trying everything else. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, that we usually get there. And I think that there's a truth to that. Yeah. And so I have a lot of faith ultimately in, in the United States of getting it right. And I do think as, you know, your comment about America sneezing and the world getting the flu kind or a cold kind of thing, I think that the world does look to the United States um, for leadership in, in, in lots of different ways. Yeah. And I think that it, um, it's important that the United States can provide that leadership um, and I and I feel good about it in the longer term, but um, I'm like everyone. I'm more worried about being worried about the short term and medium term. Doesn't mean that you don't aren't optimistic about the longer term. I am optimistic about the longer term in the United States, just as I am optimistic about the longer term in Israel and other places right. as well. So that's a good that's a good segue to the to my final question, which kind of will bridge those two those two comp, those two concepts of politics of the day and the private equity market, uh, you know, thinking about private equity, which is an illiquid strategy, 10 years long. Uh, you know, I, I remember we have, we have uh, some, some uh, money in the distressed debt market. And I was talking to one of my managers uh, a couple of years ago, actually, uh, about what's the worst uh, uh, jurisdiction they ever invested in where you know you you walk in you don't know what's going to go on in the courts because you're very court court centric in the distressed debt market you got to make sure you know what you're doing there. What was the worst jurisdiction? And without without blinking an eye, he said America, and I was shocked, right? Because I would oh Serbia or Chechnya or some crazy country that I never heard of, right? Uh, hmm. And he said America, and there was a specific thing that he was talking about, which which was quite shocking that things can change so rapidly in the U.S. as well in terms of um, uh, bankruptcy laws, whatever it may be. Uh, when you're investing in a 10-year strategy like private equity, and there is a lot of volatility in the short term, in the midterm, in politics, which, which can have a direct effect on, on corporate uh, activity, job growth, stability, et cetera, um, what's, your, what's your view on how, how important or how effective the elections are in terms of your business that you're deploying capital now, you're, you're, you're harvesting capital now. How do you think about that in terms of politics and crossing, crossing the lines of the business? So you're, so you're right. While we think of our business as being a very bottom-up business, it's undeniable that there are lots of top-down effects that, uh, that we have to consider or that we are subject to uh, one way or another. Right. And, uh, and it's undeniably true that uh, that, uh, the results of this election um, may have significant economic effects uh, out over many years, out over time um, that will affect us. And our job essentially though are, is we have to do two things, not just one. That is the first job is navigation. That is uh, let's call it being defensive in nature. Are we, have we positioned ourselves in such a way that we can weather the storm? And we spend a lot of time thinking about how we're pricing assets, the quality of the assets, uh, what we think is going to happen, that we're making conservative assumptions so that in a very broad range of outcomes, we do okay. And and, that, and I think people, people don't invest with us because they are trying to have a naked bet on private equity or the stock market. They, people and institutions invest with us because they expect us to provide them uh, with a margin of safety, which right. we do. But that's not the sum total of our responsibility. The other side of it is that 
uh, we don't just have to navigate, we have to look for opportunity. And one of the nice things about our business is that we're not just subject to macroeconomic conditions, we're a beneficiary. So that is that when things get dislocated one way or another, sort of your example about U.S. university endowments, that right. creates opportunity for us, right? Uh, when people need to sell their interests in private equity funds for whatever reason, macro or micro, that's a benefit to us. So we benefit from, uh, from dislocation to a degree. And so we need to make sure that not only are we kind of protected to weather the storm, but we're, we're looking for opportunity. And so as an example, just I'll finish with this example, uh, during the, so far during the pandemic, we've done some of the only transactions done in our space. And we've been able to buy pieces of funds like Hellman and Friedman and Silver Lake and Bain at 50% discounts. Wow. So, so this situation uh, creates opportunity for us. We're not immune from the negative effects of it, right? Which we have to, we have correlated, so we have to navigate it but we also can look for opportunity and that's where we're focused in a big way. That's a, that makes sense. That's a, so the margin of safety is, is, seems to be an important component in the future, the future performance, you may be direct directionality. There may be a lot of directionality in, uh, in terms of your, uh, of your exposure, but because you can come in at a much better, a better position, uh, it, it provides that opportunity. That's interesting. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for, for your time. This has been exciting and interesting. Uh, and I do wish you guys luck uh, tomorrow. Uh, we'll be watching from 6,000 miles away with trepidation. So I uh, uh, hope it all works out. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, uh, and uh, we will be in touch. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. All right, David. Thank you. Take care.